This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Wiskar, and I'm joined today by a new co-host, Dr. Samantha Young. So she's a fellow resident in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. So Sam, welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Katie. All right. Well, let's jump right into it, Sam. So why don't you tell me about the article that you chose to discuss this week? The article I chose is Complementary Medicine, Refusal of Conventional Cancer Therapy and Survival Among Patients with Curable Cancers, with first author Skylar Johnson, published very recently in JAMA Oncology. That certainly sounds like an interesting and potentially controversial topic. So why don't you start just by telling me the bottom line for this article? So in this retrospective observational study using data from the National Cancer Database in the United States containing nearly 2 million people, those who used complementary medicine were more likely to refuse additional conventional cancer treatment and had a higher risk of death. Hmm, sounds like there's going to be a lot to unpack there. So I'm excited to hear a bit more about this trial. So why don't you start off just by telling me why you chose this study to discuss today? So complementary and alternative medicine are a huge multi-billion dollar industry, and I've found that patients often use them alongside or as an alternative to medically recommended treatment. These authors actually did a previous study showing that alternative medicine used instead of conventional cancer treatment was associated with an increased risk of death. But prior to this current study, we didn't know a lot about the effect of complementary medicine used alongside conventional cancer treatment on death and treatment outcomes. Since patients are going to use these modalities, it's important to have conversations with them, and this, I think, can aid in that conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's something that we are not really taught about in medical school is sort of the integration of complementary or alternative therapies. So I think it's great to have this piece of evidence to help guide us in those conversations. Yeah, I agree. All right, so let's get right into it with the methods. So what was the design of this study and where did it take place? This is a retrospective observational study utilizing data from the United States National Cancer Database. This contains nearly 2 million patients across 1,500 centers. They identified those who use complementary medicine and then used 4 to 1 propensity score matching to create the control group. And just for our listeners, can you explain a little bit what propensity score matching is? What's the point of doing something like that? Yeah, so they identified the group who used complementary medicine, and arguably that's going to be quite a distinct group of people with its own characteristics, including age, gender, socioeconomic status. So to compare them, they matched all of those characteristics that they could think of being confounders and then used a four to one matching to create this artificial control group to better control for confounders. Got it. So we had a study group and then a control group four times the size of it, but that were theoretically matched on some of those variables you mentioned. Exactly. All right. So tell me a little bit more then about who were the patients in the study. So this study only looked at patients with the four most common cancers, that being breast, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancer. And they all had to receive at least one conventional cancer treatment. Patients were excluded if they had metastatic or stage four disease at diagnosis, or if they received treatment with palliative intent. So they were really trying to find patients who potentially had treatable cancers. All of the patients had to undergo at least one conventional cancer treatment, such as chemo, radiation, or surgery, but it was any combination of those things. 
Got it. Okay. And what was the exposure they looked at? I guess you've already mentioned it would be complementary medicine. Is that right? Yeah. So how they identified that is using this database. They looked at a question that was asked to patients by providers. And if they reported having used some other cancer treatment administered by a non-medical personnel, that was counted as complementary medicine. All right. And then what were their outcomes that they were looking at at the end of all this? The primary outcome was overall survival, and they defined that as time from diagnosis until death. They also realized that that could be mediated by other things, such as treatment refusal or treatment delay. So they created a second model to control for that, looking at survival controlled for treatment refusal or treatment delay. All right. So it sounds like, I mean, this was obviously a huge database-driven study, and as is often the case with those things, when you lack sort of maybe very granular data about disease specifics and those kinds of things. They looked at sort of big, hard outcomes like mortality, which makes a lot of sense. All right. So having set the table there, why don't you tell us what they found? So interestingly, as you mentioned, this is a huge database study, but in the end, they only identified 258 patients, which was 0.01% of the entire database who used complementary medicine in addition to conventional treatment. Those who used complementary medicine were more likely to be younger, so the mean age was 56, and then they matched that in the control group. They were more likely to be female, of higher socioeconomic and education status, and reside in the Intermountain or Pacific West. Because of the four-to-one matching, the control arm contained just over a thousand patients. Hmm. I have to say, I mean, as you probably were, I'm pretty surprised at the small numbers there, given the huge numbers that they started with. And I wonder if some of that reflects a hesitancy by patients to disclose the fact that they're using complementary medicine or, you know, other errors in coding or that kind of thing. But that's certainly interesting. So with those two groups then, what was the impact on survival at the end of the day? So they found on univariate survival analysis, complementary medicine was associated with a poorer five-year survival. And so in the complementary medicine group, it was 82% compared to 86% in the control group. Complementary medicine remained independently associated with poorer survival, even after controlling for the confounders we mentioned, such as age, sex, socioeconomic status, cancer type, and stage of cancer. When they stratified by cancer type, complementary medicine was associated with a poorer five-year survival for breast cancer and borderline significant survival for colorectal cancer. There were no statistically significant differences seen in the five-year survival for patients with prostate or lung cancer, but overall, when they grouped it all together, there was poorer survival in the complementary medicine group. All right. And then how about when they controlled for things, because I I know they looked at also controlling for the effect of delayed treatment or refusal of conventional therapy, because that I thought was probably the most interesting part here. Yeah, I agree. So when they looked at delay to treatment, there was really no difference between the two groups. They both had a median delay to treatment of just under 30 days, but there was a really significant difference between the two groups in refusal of treatment. So for example, 53% in the complementary medicine arm refused radiotherapy compared to 2.3% in the control arm. That was statistically significant, as were the rates of refusal for chemotherapy, hormone therapy, and surgery, with the complementary medicine arm having higher rates of what they call refusal, although I don't love that term Mm. of refusing treatment. How about when they looked at the impact on survival, 
Once you controlled for that obviously huge difference in accepting or declining additional conventional treatment. Yeah, exactly, Katie. So after they adjusted for treatment refusal and delay, complementary medicine was no longer associated with a statistically significant risk of death. However, the treatment refusal rates were so different between the groups that one could think that's probably the reason of why there was an impact on survival and that's sort of the conclusion that the authors draw. All right then. So super interesting and a lot of things to potentially discuss there. So were there any sort of specific points or observations that you wanted to make about this study, Sam? So I think we already touched a little bit on that. I I am also skeptical that only 258 people identified as using complementary medicine. And maybe it's because we both practice in the West that we're (laughs) suspicious of that. But everyone's going to a naturopath. (laughs) But, you know, I think they do outline some of the reasons that you mentioned of whether patients were scared or just didn't want to volunteer that information to their Mm -hmm. provider, especially that most of the people gathering this data theoretically were oncologists. So maybe there was a bit of judgment felt there. Uh, One other thing I found interesting when I looked through some of the supplementary material was that 43% of patients in the complementary medicine group were in stage one. And I think that's maybe the most concerning part of the whole thing is Mm -hmm. that if overall you're finding, despite controlling for different stages, that there's an impact on survival in people with potentially curative cancer, that's something I think we should just all be aware of it. But they actually highlight in the study that it was more in stage three cancer that people were more likely to use complementary medicine and that was kind of a new finding Mm. in the literature. Okay. Any significant limitations, you think, in the methodology of this study that we haven't talked about yet? So just because of the small sample size and the way that the data was collected, we don't have any insight into what types of complementary medicine patients are using. And so I think further research is needed in this area. Um, They just weren't able to tell us that, but that's important to me as a provider to know what exactly people are using and if we could further stratify by what type of complementary medicine people are using. Yeah, and I guess I would sort of echo and expand those thoughts just to say that really this trial doesn't tell us anything about complementary medicine itself being harmful. It seems to be really the refusal of conventional treatment that had the impact on survival. And so we really don't know, I think, when patients ask us, would it be harmful for me to have naturopathic treatments, have massage, have yoga. I don't think that this trial really informs that at all, other than tell us that patients who decline conventional treatment do seem to do worse. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's really what I'll take from this study is that it's a gateway to discuss alternative medicine with patients. And given the small sample size and a lack of discerning data on what types they received, it wouldn't be enough for me to dismiss or discourage all forms of complementary medicine. But I think it does enhance the dialogue and perhaps encourage patients to find complementary medicines that still allow for engagement in treatment if that's what they want. And ultimately, each patient will make the decision that works for them and I think our job particularly as general internist is to provide the information and make sure patients are making an informed decision. I think you've just done a beautiful job of summarizing kind of the main points from this trial and its impact on your findings so that's great thank you so much Sam. Thanks. Why don't we move on to the study that I chose to discuss this week. So I chose the Paramedic 2 trial. So This is a trial that has already received quite a bit of attention in the uh, foam world. So it's a randomized trial of epinephrine in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in July of 2018, and the first author was Perkins. 
That's great. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this article. So what's the bottom line of this article? So the bottom line here is that in this randomized controlled trial of about 8,000 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the use of epinephrine per current ACLS protocols resulted in higher rates of return of spontaneous circulation and higher 30-day survival. However, there was no difference in survival with favorable neurologic outcome, and there were more survivors with severe neurologic impairment in the epinephrine group. Yep, so I I guess that we'll unpack that a little bit more, but why do you think this article is important in the broader context of what we know already? So, I mean, I think cardiac arrest is obviously, unfortunately, extremely common, both out of hospital and in hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, And thus far, the only things that have shown robustly to provide survival benefit are high quality CPR and early defibrillation. Now we use epinephrine in cardiac arrest and I feel like I was trained to think of it as kind of dogma to use epinephrine, but it's one of those interesting things where if you actually go back and look at the evidence, it's actually quite poor supporting the benefit of epi in cardiac arrest. So a lot of the data is from the 60s, a lot of it is in animal models, and I think now we're starting to recognize the potential deleterious effects of especially very high doses of epinephrine. So just to back up very quickly into some physiology, the rationale for using epinephrine in cardiac arrest is that it actually on your alpha receptors causing vasoconstriction, increases your blood pressure, especially your diastolic blood pressure, which is when you perfuse your coronary arteries to increase blood supply to the heart. Now, epinephrine, of course, also acts on your beta receptors, causing an increased myocardial oxygen demand, which is not great if you're in a cardiac arrest, potentially caused by, let's say, an ACS, um, and also makes you more susceptible to arrhythmias. There's also some research now that epinephrine may promote microvascular thrombosis in the cerebral vasculature in the brain, and that may lead to worse neurologic outcomes down the line. So we're really starting to think hard about whether or not it actually is beneficial to continue with this dogma of using epinephrine in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And thus far, there had been no randomized controlled data on the subject. So this is really the first trial to give us some direction in the matter. Well, it sounds very important. So where did this study take place and what was the design of it? So this was our classic double-blinded, randomized, prospective controlled trial. And it was done in the UK involving five different NHS ambulance services, so National Health Service. And who are the patients in this study? So these were patients who had sustained out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and ACLS provided by an NHS crew. And when I say sustained, these were patients who did not have immediate return of spontaneous circulation following initial CPR or initial defibrillation. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we go through this trial, looking at the survival rates in particular, because we have to remember that those patients who came back right away, and we might expect to do the best down the road, were excluded from this trial. In addition, they also excluded anyone who was under 16 years old, who was pregnant, or who had arrest due to asthma or anaphylaxis, which makes sense given that epinephrine is obviously a valid treatment in those cases, or traumatic arrests. Finally, they were excluded if they got epinephrine before the arrival of the ACLS crew. Okay, and what was the intervention? You kind of already mentioned it, but expand a little bit upon that for us. Mm -hmm. So as you would expect, they stratified patients by rhythm, as we do in a cardiac arrest. So VT or VF, ventricular uh, tachyrhythmia or ventricular fibrillation versus 
pulseless electrical activity, PEA, or asystole. And each of those groups was then randomized to epinephrine, a code dose of one milligram of epinephrine, or placebo. And they then followed standard ATLS protocols in the UK. So just as a quick refresher, for VTVF patients, they got either epinephrine or placebo with a third cycle of CPR, along with 300 milligrams of amiodarone, plus defibrillation as soon as possible. Thereafter, they got epinephrine every three to five minutes. Uh, and for the PEAA systole group, they got epinephrine as soon as possible and thereafter every three to five minutes. Following their out-of-hospital resuscitation, all patients were transported to hospital where care was not standardized, but providers were obviously encouraged to follow national post-arrest guidelines. Great. So it's kind of what I'm familiar with in hospital, but then taken to the out-of-hospital setting. Yeah, exactly. Although, as we'll talk about a bit, there are some important differences in those settings and um, the patients who have these kind of events. Yeah. And what was their primary outcome? So the primary outcome here was 30-day survival. Uh, and they looked at several secondary outcomes. I won't mention all of them, but a few that were interesting were return of spontaneous circulation, survival to hospital discharge, and I think the most important was survival with a favorable neurologic outcome, which they looked at at hospital discharge and 30 days. And they defined that as a score of three or less on the modified Rankin scale, which is a commonly used scoring system in trials of cardiac arrest, traumatic brain injury, and that grades you on a scale of zero to six. So zero is no disability and six is death. Three, which is in the middle, which is still counted favorable, is a moderate disability requiring some assistance, but still able to walk and perform and attend to your own bodily needs. So I think a level which most of us would agree is still a pretty reasonable neurologic outcome, although obviously that can be very subjective. Yeah, it's of course important that they included that for the study. So let's move on to the results. So what were the main findings of this study? So the average patient in this study was 69 years old, male, had a witnessed arrest with bystander CPR, and most of them had non-shockable rhythms, which was kind of interesting. Almost 80% had non-shockable rhythms, which I think probably speaks to the fact that many patients with shockable rhythms probably had one shock and then immediate return of spontaneous circulation. In terms of our primary outcome, the epinephrine group had 130 patients alive at 30 days out of about 4,000, so that was 3.2% versus 94 patients, which is 2.4% for the placebo group. So that was statistically significant with an NNT of 112. Interestingly though, when you look at favorable neurologic outcome at hospital discharge, there was no statistically significant difference. 2.2% of patients in the epinephrine group and 1.9% in the placebo group had a good neurologic outcome at discharge. And logically, you can therefore extrapolate that there was more survivors with severe neurologic impairment in the epinephrine group. So there were 39 out of 126 survivors with severe impairments in the epinephrine group versus only 16 of 90 in the placebo group, so almost twice as high. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important outcomes for us to look at, especially thinking about whether or not this should be instituted on a big scale. Absolutely. And then the final result that, again, digging into the supplementary appendix where they hide all kinds of interesting data, epinephrine seemed to actually only improve 30-day survival in patients with non-shockable rhythms uh, with an odds ratio of 2.15, but not with shockable rhythms. It wasn't significant there. And that you can think on a pathophysiologic basis of why that might be the case. That's very interesting. And I think that's an important study. So are there any points or observations you want to make that particularly caught your eye? So I think 
as you've kind of talked about, I think the study does a really good job of honing in on probably the most important aspect of resuscitation, which is not just survival, but survival with a good neurologic outcome. And I suspect that both of us, as we've gone through our training, and most people in healthcare, you see so many people who survive but do so poorly and have such complicated courses that it really solidifies for you in your mind the importance of survival with you know preservation of brain tissue and i think that's really what resuscitation is all about i think that this trial is extremely interesting and to me it answers some questions but it opens up a whole lot of other questions I think you can tell that I'm a physiology nerd and I think the physiology of thinking about this is really interesting and the authors make an excellent point in their discussion about how using this code dose of epi, so a huge dose of one milligram, is kind of like, I don't know, trying to build a piece of furniture and just having a giant hammer to do everything. And it's kind of ignoring the fact that arrests have a huge multitude of you know pathophysiology and patient comorbidities and you know, physiologic disturbances and to think that the same massive dose of a drug would be beneficial to all of them is probably pretty simplistic. And so I think that there's a lot of room for trials in future looking at things like smaller doses of epinephrine to potentially avoid some of those deleterious effects. We're looking at, you know, maybe epinephrine just for patients with non-shockable rhythms. Because to me, it makes sense that if someone has arrested from a myocardial infarction, if I give them a drug that increases their oxygen demand and makes them more arrhythmogenic, it might be harmful rather than beneficial. So I think there's a lot of questions that hopefully will be answered by future studies in this area. And I'm really excited to kind of see what else we learn. Yeah, one of the things I found surprising is they actually refer to that, I believe, at one milligram as low dose epinephrine. And I think that was probably before our time that there were studies of these huge doses of epinephrine, five, 10 milligrams, and I can't even think of what that would do, but that's pretty, that's pretty shocking, yeah. I agree. And the final thing I'll just say from this study, and they highlighted in the discussion, is that they compare the NNT that they had for epinephrine, which was 112, to the NNTs for bystander CPR and early defibrillation, just to remind us of what's really important in resuscitation. So the NNT for bystander CPR is 15, and for early defibrillation, it's 5. So we like to talk about like exciting new drugs and new protocols and all this stuff in medicine, but often it's really the basic things that save lives. So it's a good reminder to all of us that those things should really be the focus and that, you know, playing around with drugs and trying to find out what might work is important, but to not get distracted by that. I think that's a great point. And is there any limitations you want to mention that we didn't cover already? I think the biggest one is just to say that this was obviously a study of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. So you can't generalize this to our practice and the patients we see who have in-hospital cardiac arrests because that's a very different patient population. It's a very different personnel responding, very different response times. So I'm hopeful that we'll see studies of epi in in in-hospital arrests, but I don't think we can carry over the data as of yet. Yeah, it's good to see studies that make you question something you never questioned before. Mm -hmm. Always learning in medicine is the great thing about it. So thanks, Katie. And can you just summarize for us your take on what this study brings to the table? So I think overall, this was a well-conducted RCT in a field that really lacked a lot of data. And, you know, it showed us that in this trial, epinephrine versus placebo for out-of-hospital arrest was associated with greater survival, but no improvement in good neurologic outcome. So I think for me at this point, and probably most listeners, the applications of this trial are more 
theoretical and academic because I'm not in the field resuscitating people who have out of hospital arrest. But I think, as you said, it, it just makes me think about and makes me question my practice for in-hospital patients. And I will be very interested to see what literature comes out in this field in the future. That's great. All right. So it's time to move on to, I think, everybody's favorite part of the podcast. Definitely my favorite part. The Good Stuff segment, where we are talking about what we are reading about. So Sam, why don't you tell me what you were reading this week? So wearing my other hat, I recently started my fellowship in addiction medicine, and I've come across a few really interesting studies related to psychedelics, or as they're sometimes called, entheogens, whatever you choose to call them. And I just wanted to bring them up here because I think it's a really hot topic in the field of addiction medicine and medicine in general. And if you keep your eyes and ears open, you're going to hear a lot more about this coming soon. So there was a study that came out in 2017 in the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse by Matthew Johnson and his group at Hopkins University. And they were using psilocybin, which you may better know as magic mushrooms, for smoking cessation. And while the N is only 15, which I imagine wouldn't usually get airtime on the rounds table, (laughs) it is really hard to do studies with these substances given the regulation. So their initial study showed 80% of participants were biologically verified to be abstinent from smoking after six months. And then they just did this follow-up study in 2017 showing that at over two years of follow-up, 60% remained abstinent from smoking. So that's pretty huge numbers. And just for me, as someone who will treat this commonly, and we all see people who smoke often, it's a pretty interesting and while we can't draw any conclusions yet, I'm excited to see where this goes. There was just a U of T study that surveyed over 900 people who reported microdosing of psychedelic drugs. And their preliminary results that they just presented showed benefits in creativity and lower negative emotionality. So I just wanted to put it on everyone's radar that there's going to be lots more research coming out in this area. And I'm personally very excited to see where it all goes. I totally agree. I love it when we have studies that kind of push us outside of our normal box in medicine and look at things that we may never have thought of as potentially beneficial. So I'm also very excited to see what comes out of that field. You'll have to keep me posted. Oh, I will. (laughs) So what do you have for us? So I kind of went along with my theme of cardiac arrest and resuscitation. So this was a perspective piece published by McGowan in the New England Journal in July called, Will You Forgive Me For Saving You? And I would recommend reading it only if you have a box of Kleenex handy, if you're an emotional person. Um, So it's a really sort of powerful, beautifully written perspective piece by a physician who is involved in a very dramatic resuscitation of a young infant. And his thoughts and guilt and sort of questioning as he sees that infant grow up later and sees sort of the difficult life that he has with neurologic impairment and a trach and a peg and those kinds of things Um, and questioning whether sometimes when we're performing these heroic resuscitations whether we're always 
doing good for our patients or whether sometimes we may be doing more harm than good. So it was a really, to me, a very powerful piece and kind of uh, very much in keeping with the theme of what I presented. And I think something that I know I've thought about when I've been at resuscitations and something that I'm sure, you know, rings true for a lot of us. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm very excited to read that. And I think it's important that we're all reflecting on what we're doing every day. And so it's pretty brave to write something like that. So I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, that's it for us today. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to have you on the show. I hope that you'll be back soon. I would love to. This was fun. Thanks, Katie. All right. See you all next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airways. You never know what's in store until you tune in.